Today's episode was also a video interview, so please check it out if you want to watch it at youtube.com slash ericunley, or even just go to ericunley.com and that will take you there. Also on the channel, you'll find my live streams. Just yesterday, I had one with James Fitzgerald, who was instrumental in identifying and capturing the Unabomber. And before that, I had James Fallon on. It was very similar in talking about subject matter such as today. And today we do have Dr. Joni Johnston from the YouTube channel Making a Murderer. She is a forensic psychologist who also writes for Psychology Today. We have a great lively chat talking about things like serial killers and men versus women and how they interact. I think you'll really enjoy it. So I bring to you Dr. Joni Johnston. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we are joined by an expert I discovered via Reddit. I am on Reddit, and I've subscribed to a true crime section, and somebody on there recommended the YouTube channel Unmasking a Murderer with Dr. Joni Johnston. I looked it up, and I said, Hey, I'm into the human condition. I have got to meet her and I have her on today. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. And you're one of the people, and I always get so excited whenever I discover new people because I start to dig. And then it's great when, as I'm digging, I find out more and the information leads to other questions. Now, you are a clinical forensic psychologist, which is pretty fascinating and amazing. And can you break that down for me really quickly? What is a forensic versus a clinical psychologist? Well, it oftentimes starts out the same, not so much now, but back in the day when I was in graduate school, there really, there really weren't any forensic psychology programs. So if you were interested in forensic psychology, you would get a clinical psychology degree and then you would just take all kinds of continuing education credit and, and also get work experience that was in the criminal justice system or was in a prison or was in a juvenile detention facility. And then that's kind of the way you became a forensic psychologist. And so now what is one? I mean, what exactly is a forensic psychologist? I mean, it's a name thrown around. Is it uh, for profiling people? What is it can it? be, but it rarely is. So forensic psychology basically is a pretty general term that subscribe that that um means any area where law and psychology meet or overlap. Mm-hmm. That's where you find forensic psychologists, and that could be a lot of different things. It can be in civil litigation. Somebody, for example, has mm-hmm. has been involved in a car accident, and this person is saying, "I'm emotionally distressed." Because of this car accident, they might have a forensic psychologist come evaluate them and try to figure out, okay, A, is this person emotionally distressed? What We have to define what that means. And if they are, is it because of this car accident or is it because of all these other things that maybe happened in their childhood or something else that was going on? It could also be somebody who is evaluating an insanity plea or somebody is competent to stand trial. There are forensic psychologists who do jury research. Um, there are psychologists who do criminal profiling. So it's a, even though it sounds like a narrow kind of, kind of topic, and certainly when you look at clinical psychology, forensic psychology is a relatively narrow focus. It, you know, how it can be applied is, is really, really, really broad. Do you deal with the victims too? Yes. 
Absolutely. So, yeah, okay. again, it can kind of it can kind of run the gamut. It can be you know testifying, and so, so for example, let's say you have somebody who you know, this is somebody who was a victim who then potentially became a perpetrator. So if, let's for, say, for example, you have a battered woman's case. You have a woman who has this horrible history of battery. She's called the police numerous times. Um, they fail to protect her, which is oftentimes very difficult to do. Uh, the perpetrator ignored restraining orders. And then at some point there's an altercation and she picks up a gun and she shoots him. And the defense might say, well, yes, this person did, in fact, shoot this person. They can say it was self-defense, but sometimes the action isn't, you know, it isn't necessarily the heat of the moment. So let's say this person built up over time and it eventually just went and killed this person. You might have a forensic psychologist who's now talking about a victim who became, you know, I guess an alleged perpetrator in that narrow sense is somebody who killed somebody who was on trial. So there's, again, all different kinds of ways that forensic psychologists can be involved in, in trials, in testimony, in evaluations, in evaluating violence risk for inmates who are going to be released. So yeah, lots of different ways I can be involved. Well, you have a lot to chew on there. That's awesome. Now, what I found fascinating, and you probably know where I'm going, is you're a private investigator. That's a different kind of path. Now, was that before you became a psychologist or was it after? It was after I became a psychologist. So we were talking already about how broad Forensic, forensic psychology can be. And one of the things I did for a period of my life was partnering with a labor law attorney. And we did a lot of investigations in workplace misconduct situations and harassment discrimination investigations. And in order to, in California, to do a workplace investigation, you have to either be an attorney or you have to be a licensed private investigator. So after I had been doing these, and they passed this law long after, I mean, a lot later after I began doing them. And so I actually went back and got my private investigator's license so I could continue that work and investigate threat assessments and, and those kind of things in the workplace. Is it fun? Yes. It is. Yeah, <laughs> I, t I love what I do. I started getting interested in the criminal mind, I guess, and where law and psychology meet at age 14, and it's never stopped. And I really feel incredibly lucky that I have never been bored at all with what, that I, what I do. I believe you said that you started with Helter Skelter, the book by Vincent Bugliosi. Hopefully I said it right. Yes, I was 14, which we could talk about, you know, how appropriate it may or may not have been to be reading this book. But that aside, my mom, I have to say, was a diehard true crime fan before that, I guess, became popular. She was always interested in that. And I found this book and we read it on vacation and was absolutely just mystified, fascinated, intrigued, confused, um, you know, all of the above. And knew at that point that I wanted to do something along those lines. And then when I was a senior in, in college, I talked my professor into taking us, our class, to a maximum security prison in Alabama. And we were able to have, you know, several of the inmates would come and talk about their life experience and kind of what had led them up to that path. And that sealed the deal. That's fascinating that you went there. And actually, it made me want to visit a stereotype, and if it is a stereotype and incorrect, I want to visit that. If it's correct, I want to explore that. But true crime and women, it seems that women are very, very interested in true crime. 
almost more so than men. Is that something you've seen or heard? There are actually, I think, some studies that support that. So I don't think that's just a stereotype. Now, I think the big question mark is, why is that? And there are so many theories. And of course, the reality is we don't know for sure why that is. Because when you ask different people, you'll hear different answers. Some people will say, well, I feel like it, um, by understanding like why crimes are committed, how they're committed, I might be safe. I can be safer. Other people will say, I just can't understand how somebody could do something so horrible. That's just intriguing to me. I've even had people say, you know, I felt so bound in my life by my empathy for other people or needing to caretake other people that I think I've almost wondered what it would be like to be unencumbered by that, to just not care about anybody or not have any feelings for anybody else. Not that that person wants to do anything that would be horrible, sure. but they have this kind of, it's just almost like I can't, like, it's like studying a different creature almost. I can't even understand or imagine being in a situation where my decisions were never clouded by my concern or empathy or caring for somebody else. That's interesting. And I think you've talked with um, people in other interviews before about the differences between female and male serial killers, as an example, because I know you've researched a lot of serial killers. And it was something about the whole um, hunt and gather aspect that a male serial killer is more likely to hunt, whereas a female serial killer, again, these are generalizations, but they're more likely to gather, um, like black widows, things like that. Well, there's, there's no question. I mean, there's certainly some evolutionary psychologists who insist that this, these differences that we see between male and female serial killers, and there are differences, are, are due to some evolutionary throwback. That, you know, the fact that, that at one point men were out there hunting and bringing home meat and all that, that that somehow predisposed them when they began, you know, serial killing to be hunters of strangers, for example, to be more sexually motivated, to be more interested in power. Whereas when you look at female serial killers, you do see, for the most part, differences. They're much more likely to kill, to kill people that they know, to kill people in vulnerable positions. They're much um, more likely to get away with it for a longer period of time. They're most, they're much more likely to be financially motivated or to kill somebody for convenience. In other words, I'm tired of you. I want somebody else. So here's a convenient way for me to get rid of you. You very rarely ever see a female or a female serial killer who's interested, does it for sexual motives. Um, sometimes you have this partnership that will develop and that's a whole nother, I guess, can of worms where you have a dominant partner and a, a is it Paul something or another and Kristen in Canada. I forgot the name of the company. Yeah, there's Paul Homolka and I'm, I'm blanking also on her name, Carla. She's Homolka. She's Carla Homolka. He's, he's Paul. What is his Bernard? Bernard, yes, Paul Bernard, yeah, current, yeah, and he's still in prison, and she was released, um, you know, several years ago, and has a family, et cetera, et cetera. And there is a situation which I think is kind of interesting because I think a lot of times when you look at these male female serial killer teams, it may start out as 
one person kind of being dominant or having these fantasies and really driving the boat or the car in terms of looking for victims and having this agenda. But I do think that over time that relationship can change. And there have certainly been situations where the woman may have started out being the kind of the secondary partner, but it kind of takes on a life of its own for her. And I know in that particular case of Carla Hamolka and Paul Bernard, there was a lot of evidence that regardless of how she started out, that at some point she became a fully active participant and seemed to enjoy some of the activities that they were engaging in. Yeah. And then there's Patty Hearst. It's not a serial killer, but again, that whole Stockholm syndrome question or, or whatever, and evidence that she actually knew um, Donald DeFries and was sleeping with him in prison before he got out. Is there a case to be made that sometimes the less dominant, as you were saying, might actually be kind of egging him, egging on the partner or or possibly manipulating or driving the situation at times? I think there have been. And I definitely think the relationships among these team killers is a lot more complicated than we think that they are, especially initially. One of the things I will say is, you know, there's an argument, I guess, that could be made that we underestimate women in general. But I certainly think we underestimate women and their capacity for violence. Now, of course, 90 percent of all homicides are committed by men. So I'm certainly not here to say that, you know, there's an equal share of violent behavior that occurs. (laughs) But, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting is that when you look at female serial killers who are much rarer, than male serial killers, what you find, though, is, again, is I think our our cultural underestimation of women does allow them to kind of fly under the radar a lot longer mm-hmm. and get away with more murders and be more active before they tend to be caught. Yeah, there's a and I tend to jump all over the place, but there were some theories about the Civil War and that the grudge between the South and the North was held much longer, not because of the men, because they were out there fighting each other and they were kind of tired of fighting and shooting at each other, but they had to go home to the women. And there was kind of a degree of shame that they had lost and that they had left their women at home. And that persisted kind of a a deep seated hatred for a while, especially towards the North. Have you heard anything about that or have any thoughts? As it relates to violence or as it relates to serial killers or I'm not quite sure. As it relates to, I guess, controlling in a relationship. So in other words, maybe females in the South being more controlling in a relationship than maybe women from the North? Or of that time that that nothing is um, complete, like at least in this one area, maybe they were driving the factor. I'm not saying in all areas or anything else, but sometimes victims or I don't know how to put it. The power is not always what it seems to be. Well, I think that's probably been true since marriage began and couples began and that, you know, we can look at society and, and look at inequities, which continue to exist in terms of pay or in terms of maybe opportunities or whatever. But I think there are many couples who would say in our home, in our relationship, the dynamics are completely different. And so I'm not familiar so much with the like civil war research, but I definitely think when you look at power dynamics between two individuals, 
is very different than looking at it in terms of looking at society and, you know, again, you know, financial opportunities or career opportunities or those kinds of things. Okay. And I wanted to explore to the female serial killers and the gathering principle. It seems almost like while yes, they're committing crime, they're almost suffering themselves. Like the males out, they go hunt, they kill, they get it kind of over with, but if you really hate somebody or despise somebody or something and you live with them over a period of time, that's a, that's a completely different state of mind and being, isn't it? Well, I think that certainly, you know, we could argue that there are different motives as we've already talked about for sure, female sure, sure. serial killers and male serial killers. I think it's pretty chilling to think about, for example, um, a woman who is poisoning members of her family and mm-hmm. nursing them back to health and then making them sick again um, and then eventually killing them. I think that gathering principle is pretty chilling when you think about it in terms of, you know, this is somebody this person knows. And there have been female serial killers. You know, it's kind of interesting, Eric, that when Aileen Warnos was back when she was she, – she was kind mm-hmm. of called the first – female serial killer. And I think the reason that she was called called that was because she operated more like we think of a male serial killer, that she is somebody who killed strangers and said that they were trying to rape her. And there was a lot of inconsistent Mm -hmm. evidence that a fact, it seems like she was just really angry and she went out and murdered some really some innocent victims. And it was kind of, kind of almost, it was ironic that she was was touted as here's the first female serial killer. And I just had this fantasy sometimes of kind of this legacy of female serial killers kind of chuckling in their graves, thinking that, you know, <laughs> wow, there's this woman out there who's killing six or seven men. There have been women like Jane Toppin back in the early 1900s who killed more than 30 individuals, including, you know, her, her foster sister and, you know, numerous people that she knew and loved um, and just seemed to really delight in doing that. But the way she did it was this kind of gathering approach where she was in a caretaker role and she was either, you know, doing it for revenge or she would move in. And again, she seemed to have take some delight in really kind of a sadistic way that she would start poisoning these people and then would just be this angel of mercy who was coming in to help them and, and, you know, and nurse them back to health at the same time she's continuing and she's having, she's watching them suffer for days at a time. So Elizabeth Bathory, right? Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah. She was kind of a whole, kind of in a class of her (laughs) own for sure. Um, And yeah, there's, it's interesting that you say that because there's actually been some hypotheses that some of her murders may have been exaggerated over the years. And I don't know if that's true. She is certainly mm-hmm. touted as somebody who murdered hundreds and hundreds of, sure. of young women, tortured them, you know, was clearly sadistically motivated and also had this bizarre idea that if she bathed in, vict- in virgin's blood, she would, you know, be more beautiful and be younger, longer and all those kind of things. So she certainly was somebody who, was extremely brutal and ruthless in the way that she killed her victims. Well, maybe, I don't know if it's quite the same, but uh, Vlad the Impaler, the actual Vlad the Impaler, I've read that what he did, while it was so horrible, it was very effective because the Turks, when they went to attack, would see all these impaled bodies, and that's kind of intimidating. So there's actually a strategic reason behind what he was doing. 
I don't know if that's the case with her, but it's interesting. Well, that would be very intimidating. I think you're right. <laughs> yeah. If your enemies are coming and you see, you know, heads on a stick, I'm, you know, that would just be very, very intimidating. And I don't know that she had a strategic method to that, but what, what maybe what, what kind of came to mind when you were talking about that is it's kind of hard sometimes when you look back at some of the women who were accused of poisoning and, and were poisoning, mm-hmm. and, you know, the women who had poison schools, for example, back in, you know, the Greek times or whatever. And so technically, of course, this person would be considered a serial killer, as would Vlad the Impaler, not in the way that we tend to think of a serial killer. And I think it becomes a little bit unclear as to how much the cultural dynamics at the time contributed to some of these methods of doing away with people or methods of war. You know, if you're if you're staking your, you know, putting your enemy's head on a stick, you're still a serial killer if you're killing all these people. But yeah. again, it's not who we typically think of today as a serial killer. When, and maybe she's like Henry Lee Lucas. I mean, he just took credit of every possible murder he could to build his reputation. And other ones have done that as well, right? That just flat out, yes, they're serial killers. They kill X number, but then they say, oh, but I did this one and this one and this one and just... Any killing they read about, they pretend they did or assume. It's not uncommon. It certainly has happened that serial killers who have been caught then begin to confess to more um, kills than they've actually had. And I think that's generally done for one of two reasons. One, of course, is, okay, I'm going down, so I might as well go down as more famous than as famous as I can. So I'm going to exaggerate and I'm the most evil person in the world, et cetera, et cetera. But oftentimes I think there's a practical part of that. And that is if you're confessing to all these different murders and you're telling different law enforcement agencies, I know where this person is, I know what happened, you can really get a lot of, unfortunately, perks during that period of time. So you might be out of prison being transferred around and taken out for different um, meals and you get all this attention. So I I think there, there are, there are oftentimes secondary gains associated with that, you know, being the attention. As a matter of fact, you may be familiar with Samuel Little, who, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's currently, we think... Henry's partner, I think. No, Sam, oh, so Samuel Little was a serial killer who operated from 1970 to 2005. So this is a 35-year killing spree. And in 2018, he confessed to 93 murders. And initially, law enforcement, for these very reasons we're talking about, were just like, you know... Okay, here we go again. He wanted to, he, because one of his big motives was he wanted to change prisons. He hated the prison he was in. And a, um, a Texas Ranger came out to visit him in California and basically said, Hey, I'm trying to clear up these cases. And so Samuel Little thought, Okay, here's my chance to get out of this prison and maybe go somewhere else. Hmm. The, the twist in this is that so far they have been able to confirm almost 60 of these murders. So, it, and he has drawn just incredibly detailed pictures of victim after victim, so detailed and so accurate that family members who have not seen their loved one for 20 years, 15 years, 30 years have recognized them. So he, in fact, may be somebody that did, in fact, 
kill the number of people that he said. But because of this history of individuals confessing <laughs> right to more than they actually killed, initially he, you know, his his um, confessions were discounted. Right, and I think they did just acknowledge recently that he he effectively has the record. Yes, that uh, he, um, which is a horrible yes, record. It is. But the Green River Killer, I think, was the biggest killer prior to that, and now it is this guy. Absolutely, you're absolutely right. I think um, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, the Green River Killer had confessed to 48 murders, I believe. Yeah. And there's a actually a man in Russia who I think had 54 mm. murders. But if you're looking at the United States, then yes, um, Gary Ridgway was believed to have been you know, to have the most number of kills. Although we don't know. I mean, just like there are, are serial killers sure. who've confessed to more, there have been plenty of serial killers. Ted Bundy, for example, who I think eventually confessed to 37, between 33 and 37 uh, murders. There were, there were law enforcement agencies who were convinced that he killed over 100 women in the course of his career. So it's possible. It's po- we don't know. He, I, Ted Bundy's always going to be a unique case. And when you had mentioned about the perks, I hadn't even thought about that. I was thinking of Ted Bundy at the end who was confessing to anything and everything to buy a little more time before he was executed. Yeah, it's, you know, unfortunately, in some respects, and I've listened to many confession tapes, and they're sometimes difficult to listen to because they're interrogation tapes in which the person's making confession because one of the hardest things sometimes is that the interrogators or the investigators oftentimes completely bond in the interview with that person. They have Mm. to. This is how they're going to get information. And it can be very difficult to listen to and very hard to understand, you know, why this investigator or this Texas Ranger in the Samuel Little's case would kind of join in making these demeaning remarks about sex workers and and those kinds of things. But I think that really is sometimes the only way they're going to get that information is by building that person up. The rapport. You need rapport. I I actually do interview interrogators, FBI uh, negotiators, and also interrogators. And whether it's somebody holding a hostage or somebody you're trying to get to confess, they have to have a rapport. If they can't, then the communication stops and we don't move forward. Be it a hostage dies, somebody commits suicide, or you never find out what happened with the victim. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that forensic psychologists can help sometimes law enforcement figure out or plot is interrogation strategies. Because, for example, somebody who is a psychopath, to go into this person and say, okay, you know, the gig, you know, the jig is up with you. I mean, you know that you're going to, you're going down. Give these family members some peace. Let them bury their loved one. Give them some closure. If somebody is truly psychopathic, they're like, I don't care. What's in it for me? Can we go into tactics on that? I was talking to somebody who um, does body language and interrogation, et cetera. He didn't want to go deep into it, but he was putting, especially with a psychopath, that he found going after their pride was one of the only ways to get, to get it from them. Like, boy, that was stupid for you to do blah, blah, blah. And they would go out of their way to show that, no, they weren't stupid. They were smarter than you. Have you found anything like that? I would certainly agree that if you know that somebody is psychopathic, and I want to put a little, I guess, star by that, because 
I think psychopath is a term that is so overused. I mean, it can mean everything from somebody who clinically does meet the definition all the way to, I hate my ex-boyfriend and he's a psychopath because he broke up with me. So I think that term can be overused, but um, there are obviously criminal offender or, or violent offenders who are psychopathic. And I, I would agree that if you are, if you really believe this person is a psychopath, then you need to appeal to their ego or their pride, um, flattering them, trying to get them to teach you something. So in other words, you know, kind of a, kind of playing to their narcissism to some extent or their ego or their pride is probably the only way you are going to get any information for that person trying to appeal to them, to their, you know, sense of decency or giving this family closure or those kind of things, you know, it's, it's going to fall on deaf ears because that person's like, I don't care. Actually on the qualification that you brought up earlier, I've heard before that every psychopath is a narcissist, but not every narcissist is a psychopath. Would that be a good statement? Yes, I think that is, I would agree with that statement. I mean, there's such a thing as called what we call malignant narcissism, which mm-hmm. there's no diagnosis of that in the DSM-5. You're not going to find that. I think that's probably mm-hmm. where the overlap is. In other words, you're right. Most people who might meet the definition of narcissism or even a narcissistic personality disorder, which is I mean, we all have a healthy degree of narcissism, we hope, of self, self-interest. self But when you talk about somebody who's got a narcissistic personality disorder, the whole world revolves around them. I'm entitled to special treatment. I'm entitled to undivided attention. If you... Um, criticize me in any way. I might respond with rage because I just can't believe that you would you know, treat me this way, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that's definitely true. I think certainly individuals who are psychopathic have a very healthy degree or unhealthy degree of narcissism. But no, I don't think that all narcissists are psychopaths. And I always try to think of that as a good spectrum thing because you can have a narcissist that you don't want to hang out with them. You don't want to know them. You don't want them to be your friend, but you're not afraid of them. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times because psychopathy can be an easy thing to hide, we oftentimes aren't as afraid of psychopaths as we should be. Although, as we know, most psychopaths are not dang- are not violent. They might be dangerous in terms of being manipulative and exploitive of other people, but they're not necessarily going to kill you or hurt you physically. Yeah, and they may not even be, quote, bad people. Um, I've, I have Dr. Uh, James Fallon coming on um this week, Thursday, and he is the guy who discovered he was a psychopath by reading his own brain scan. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure if you've heard yes. of him or not. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. So, and I mean, he's a professor and a, a re- very glib, fascinating, fun person to talk mm-hmm. to. And as far as I know, he's never committed any crime that's, you know, other than maybe as a kid or something, but nothing substantial and very productive teaches at a university, everything like that. But one question I asked of him, and I'd love to cover with you, and I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times, but sociopath, psychopath, what is the difference? I think there's more of a theoretical difference than a well-researched difference. And I guess I'll kind of give you an example from my own life experience working in a prison. A, A sociopath may be somebody who was born with the capacity for empathy and compassion and remorse and guilt and, you know, probably had those things. But because of their life experience over time, typically abuse or 
neglect or you know physical or sexual abuse and sometimes growing up in a criminal environment can kind of create that mm-hmm. um, they develop uh, a way of viewing the world or a sense of values that are that are the opposite or contrary to what we would think of as being in other words it's almost like a person has learned to be a sociopath now I, I for example saw some gang members when I was working in a prison and I never had, was never afraid of any gang members that I work with. They were often always very polite with me, very cordial with me. I was not part of the gang system, but there was a whole different value system in terms of being in this gang. And then people who were not in this gang or other gang members who they tended to view, view very psychopathically or sociopathically. So it's almost like, People who, who have learned to lose their empathy or their compassion mm. or their remorse, but they have the capacity for it, or at one point they had the capacity for it. We think more and more, and I'm sure that James Fallon talked to you about this at length, we think more and more that somebody who is truly psychopathic was born with some, yeah. you know, neurological anomalies or some genetic anomalies that kind of set the stage for some this callous and unemotional view of, of the world from a pretty early age. It doesn't mean they're going to, again, going to act violently or hurt other people, but there does seem to be something kind of missing in that person from an early age. And unless a lot of attention and effort is made to help this person cope in different ways to China. Maybe they learn to be empathy, to to have empathy cognitively. In other words, they don't feel empathy, but they think what is the right thing to do, you know, or so what is the right thing to do from a society standpoint, or what is least, what is less likely to get me in trouble? So they develop other ways of dealing with the fact that they have a limited ability to really empathize with other people or feel compassion for other people. What's interesting. And I believe he has brought up now Nelson Mandela and, uh, um, Gandhi as two interesting cases in the sense that they help mankind, but don't be a family member that there are some people and it's speculated that they're on that spectrum there. And they're able to make those, quote, hard decisions, and they can say this will be effective for all of these people, but then they have no empathy well, themselves. I've certainly read articles to suggest that, um, and I think that's something I would probably need to think more about. I mean, there certainly are very sure. hard decisions that have to be made. So, for example, in the situation we're in now, Right. In terms of there's COVID-19, mm-hmm. there are people who are at risk. There are people who are hurting financially and, you know, there are people who are hurting emotionally. So we're having to weigh um, what are the the financial cost versus mm-hmm. the potential loss of life cost. And I think that James Fallon might argue that here's somebody who would be perfect to make that kind of decision because he could just look at the numbers. And go, you know, True. whereas you or I might kind of be like, but what if, but if one person is lost or if, you know, if, if loss of life is a possibility, how can we possibly go down that path? And so arguably there are people who are probably better equipped to make those decisions. And maybe those are people who can set their emotions aside and do that. It's like the trolley equation or whatever, you know, being able to say, okay, kill the child to let the five live. 
Right. It's and I think that's more philosophy than psychology, but it's always you know kind of held up as an example. I don't remember the full breakdown. I wanted to ask you too, especially since you have experience. Could somebody be, just say, temporarily sociopathic through the extended extensive use of drugs or things like that? Like, I hate to say, numbing or frying the center of their brain to where they don't act normally, and then if they're cleaned up, they might be a completely different person. That's such an interesting thought. Eric, and I think I will answer it in this respect. So if you think about a psychopath, I I kind of in my mind think of it as acting psychopathically, which Mm. is a word I'm kind of making up. But I think what I'm trying to say is I do think that we in the United States tend to underestimate the power of the situation to influence people's behavior, not only in terms of like drugs or alcohol, but just the situation that we're in. I mean, you may be familiar with some of the the prison experiment, you know, where this back in the 70s, you know, where they took these, they were screened for these for mental health, basically, and took these, you know, these undergraduates and put half of them as guards and half of them as um, inmates. And then over a few period, you know, a few days, they just atrocities that were taking place they had to stop the study because they were just mm-hmm. so I, I think we can we can certainly overlook the power of a situation to influence our behavior and we want in the united states i think we want to ignore that we want to think because we all want to think i am in control of my destiny at all time i make my own decisions i have free will and we do but i think that we, we do sometimes give up acknowledging again, the power of the situation to influence behavior. Drugs and alcohol, I will tell you, I cannot tell you the number of individuals that I've seen who, under the influence of certain drugs in particular, did horrible things. Now, I don't think they became really a temporary psychopath, but their judgment became completely clouded or impaired by what they were on, you know, what they were on at the time. And they engaged in acts that they're still responsible for legally and and arguably should be responsible for. But I was completely convinced if that person had not been under the influence of that level of drugs or alcohol, they would have made a different decision. And I was wondering that, I mean, um, some of it too, like being awake for extended periods of time, not even on drugs, just being awake continuously like let's say you work a graveyard shift and you're up all day and then you work all night next day you just can't get to sleep because you got stuff you have to do you become a little bit psychotic by 4 p.m the next day and that's no drug there are all kinds of things that could influence our mental well-being and our decision making and our judgment and all kinds of things and certainly sleep deprivation we know um, in a relatively short amount of time does begin to influence our judgment and our you know ability to make good decisions. I mean, when you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, that our frontal lobes, which are really the brakes on a lot of our mm-hmm. primitive urges, are really vulnerable in a lot of respects to being overridden by, by other things. And when you have drugs and alcohol, that is one thing that can temporarily uh, override those things. Well, they were the last to develop, if I recall. Yes, yes. And unfortunately, sometimes seem to be the first to go, you know, when it comes to be to making you know, decisions. They have to be though. Evolutionary psychology would state that the flight or flight is the most urgent. What is it? Flight front. That's right. Um, um, fight, flight, 
have sex. I'm not going to go the other <laughs> one, but those are the baseline urges in order to survive. And you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a very adaptive part of that, that if we are threatened in some way, or we think we're being threatened in some way, or in a, in a bad situation, um, if that fear is great enough or that anger is great enough, you're absolutely right. Their frontal lobes are more likely to shut down and more primitive parts of our brains are going to take over. Well, perfect. Now, let's explore what kind of primitive brains are you discussing now on your show? Wow, there's so many different things we've covered recently, um, all the way from – we were talking about a case that's still very active right now um, in the media – um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Lori Vallow Daybell and Chad Daybell case. It's been I'm not. it's been all over the news. It's a very very convoluted and hopefully not as tragic as it might be. It started out as a welfare check on two a seven year old and a seventeen year old child who nobody had seen for a couple of months, and it's just turned into this huge mystery that involves two spouses of individuals who died within a three month period of time. And these individuals who were left the spouse, the widows and widow, widow and widower married two weeks later. Um, there's there are accusations of a cult uh, or extreme religious beliefs, including this belief that the world's going to end in 2020 in July. Um, nobody still has seen these children. The mom refuses to say where they are. Um, you know, it's just become much more and more complicated. And we've been talking on this show about extreme religious beliefs and the mm. difference and similarity between religious beliefs and delusions, religious delusions that, that can kind of come up as a result of a mental illness and looking at the insanity defense and how would this ever be applicable in this case? I don't think it would be. But why wouldn't it be? And what and what does it mean to meet that in, insanity defense? So we've just been talking about a lot of issues. I'm always very interested in talking about the link between mental illness and violence because there's a lot of, I think, confusion about that. So I cover mm -hmm. a lot of cases in that respect. So there, sadly, there are a lot of opportunities to talk about crime and how psychology relates to crime. And I have a personal interest in again, looking at mental illness and violence, because there are so many misconceptions, one being that most violent behaviors are committed by people with mental illness, and that is just completely not true. But whenever we have a mass shooting or whenever there's a horrible event, the first explanation seems to be mm -hmm. mental illness first and then gun violence second, you know, without kind of stopping to look and try to figure out kind of what happened in this case. Interesting. Can we explore um, the insanity defense on the as we close out, because I've understood it as to not be capable of understanding that what you're doing is right or wrong. But I'm wondering if it's more nuanced than that. Like, for example, you mentioned a religious situation. If a quote, higher power than the law was to order somebody to do that, and they believed it. Would that be insane as well? Well, that's, does that make sense? It totally oh, makes sense. And that was a question that I had and a lot of my um, viewers had, which is, you know, because these these religious beliefs that have come out are mm -hmm. very unusual. I mean, there are things like my children were taken over by zombies 
are turned into slugs. And I mean, like we're talking about, you know, religious beliefs that are not in the mainstream and could potentially, you might argue, leave somebody to think, okay, if these children are no longer my children, I might consider actions that I would never have considered otherwise. And so that was the whole question. So the insanity defense is a pretty narrow legal concept. And I, you know, you know this already, but just to kind of reiterate that it's not a psychological concept. It is a legal concept because there are many more people who have severe mental illnesses that would ever meet the legal criteria for insanity. And you're absolutely right, Eric, that in most states that allow the insanity plea, five states don't even allow it. So no matter how psychotic you were at the time, no matter how much it was influenced, it influenced your behavior, you cannot plead not not guilty by reason of insanity in those five states. Um, but you have to show for the most part that not only do you have a serious mental illness that was you were actively psychotic at the time that you committed this crime, but that you were so actively psychotic at the time that you either didn't know what you were doing was wrong or you couldn't appreciate what you were doing was wrong. And that is an incredibly difficult, as you might imagine, um, argument to put forward. As a matter of fact, the, the insanity plea is attempted in less than 1% of all criminal cases. And of those one, less than 1%, about 25% of the time it's successful. And that's because it is so difficult to, to show that. Um, one of the examples I often give is I had, saw a young man several years ago who had no criminal history. He did have a history of um, bipolar disorder. And for whatever reason, his bipolar disorder just was not very well controlled by medication. So he was continuing to take his medication, but he was exhibiting a lot of manic symptoms. And these were well documented weeks before this happened. Mm -hmm. And this is right around 9-11, which is significant here. And so his parents are worried about him. He's a young adult. They're trying to get him to get better help or get a better medication. He's driving down the road uh, in San Diego. He looks over. He's actively hearing voices, which he'd been hearing for a couple of weeks. It was difficult for the parents because he was like 22. So they couldn't, you know, he, mm -hmm. he wasn't threatening to commit suicide. He wasn't threatening to hurt somebody else. So they couldn't really get him committed. But he's driving down the road and he looks over and he sees a man who is wearing some kind of a headscarf. And he's actively hearing voices and he hears a voice that he believes is God telling him this person is on his way to the airport in San Diego. And he is going to plant more bombs on San Diego planes, right? So here's this person who is hearing these voices. So what does he do? He swerves over, runs the guy off the road. This poor man who's just, you know, driving down the road on the highway, he runs him over to the side of the road, off the road. The guy stops. Um, my, the person I evaluated, then proceeds to ram his car into, into this particular man because he thinks what? He thinks, I have got to save all of these people that are going to die on this airplane. Now, there is a relatively happy ending here because this guy did nobody got seriously hurt, although I'm sure they were okay. I'm sure they were traumatized the people who were in the car. Um, there were dozens of witnesses 
he's not trying to hide anything. There are people, right, who are on the highway, see this happening. He's also calling 911, right? So he's not only hitting, mm. he's calling 911 and he's saying to the police, hurry up. You've got to get here. I think I've disabled his car, but I'm not sure. So he's full delusion. 100% delusional. And so the police do come. And again, luckily, nobody gets hurt. Um, this person is initially charged with attempted murder. And, you know, fortunately, in a couple of different in a couple of different respects, fortunately, which is actually true in most cases, which is another kind of myth, the, the prosecutor and the defendant got together. I mean, they had experts who mm -hmm. evaluated him. All the experts said mm -hmm. this is somebody who was actively psychotic and could not appreciate at the time that what he was doing was wrong. I mean, this person thinks he's a hero, right? He is solving right. another 9-11. And so he was actually able, I think he, I think he did go to, to jail, not prison for a, you know, a period of time, but not a long period of time. And he got treatment and he ended up, you know, he's, does, he's doing extremely well now. You know, they found a medication okay. that works for him. But that's a situation where an insanity plea, I believe, is appropriate. But rare. But exactly. It, it is rare. And you know what, Eric? It should be rare because you should only be reserved for those, for those times when a person, through no fault of their own, actively believes. And, and I will tell you that, again, that is very rare for that to happen. Wow. Well, this is wonderful. And people can find out more about you. Let me see. You write a column in Psychology Today, The Human Equation. Yes, I do. And you also wrote the ironically titled Idiot's Guide to Psychology. I did. That, there were, I must say that there were a ton <laughs> of idiot's guides. So no, no, no. I remember that for dummies. You were competing for the four <laughs> exactly. dummies. But exactly. of all, all things, I'm sorry. I, I want the um, Idiot's Guide to Brain Surgery. That would be the only, <laughs> only thing that could be better. Well, you know, I've always had such a diverse interest. You know, I do. I mean, psychology is so interesting to me and forensic psychology is so interesting to me. So at the time, my agent, because he was always frustrated because he would say, just pick one thing and just, you know, just focus on arsonist or, you know, you know, and I was like, I can't, I, I'm so interested in these things. And so when um, a publisher in New York went and said, we're looking for somebody to write about psychology in general, he called me and he goes, I've got the book for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. With your diverse skills, I'm hoping what I do is I have a live stream where I bring back previous guests and they answer questions of their own audience and my audience um, just in general. And with you being a generalist like you are, I was hoping I could invite you to come on and maybe answer some questions. I would love to do that. You know, answering questions of my you know, my show is one of my favorite things to do. So I would be happy to do that. Well, fantastic. We'll definitely set that up. And thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome, Eric. I enjoyed it. Wasn't Joni great? Thank you so much for tuning in. And, and hey, let's keep the conversation going. You can find me on all the social medias as Hunley Eric. That's Facebook, Instagram. I'm not very good at it, so don't expect much. And Twitter, where I'm most active. And I want to shout out a couple friends today. Let's start with Andy Wong of Inspired Money. Andy is a great friend. We go way back. He does a fantastic job of really digging down and interviewing guests in a great manner. And my other friend, Super Joe Pardo of the Super Joe Pardo Show. 
Joe is a well-established member of the podcasting community and is always giving back. If you want to learn more about how to create a podcast, move forward, well, Joe is constantly striving to be better and train others with his indomitable spirit. Thanks again, and I hope you have a fantastic rest of your day.